0: Remain standing for just a moment, please. As a child in school, we all learned to recite what we know to be the pledge to the American flag. A little history will show you that it was originally written in 1892 by Francis Bellamy. It was actually designed to be a pledge non-specific to any particular country because Bellamy's hope was that it could be used by any citizen of any country. It had verbiage like this, I pledge allegiance to my flag and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. It was then in 1923 uh, that the specific verbiage was added to the flag of the United States of America. But then it was in the glorious year of 1954. Does anyone know why 1954 was a glorious year? It was the year I was born. I'm really disappointed you didn't know that. In the glorious year of 1954, in response to the communist threat of the times, President Dwight D. Eisenhower encouraged Congress to add the words, under God, therewith creating what we still have today, which is, as you know, what we say, we say this, join me please, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all." And the church said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Quinnell. But having just said that, I can't help but wonder whether or not this pledge that we have just quoted is truly applicable to us today. Do we really have one nation in 2020? Can we really say it is under God? Are you looking across the landscape of our country today and able to say that it is indivisible? And is there actually liberty and justice for all? No matter where you happen to stand today on this continuum of hope for this nation, no matter what your regard is for the future of our country, I want you to know that I stand before you today holding on to a very firm conviction, a strong conviction that burns within my soul. And this conviction sounds very much like a song that we often sing around this place. It would easily fit within that song. My strong conviction is this. Freedom has a name, and it's Jesus. Is anybody with me this morning? Come on, put your hands together. You can do that at 9 o'clock. Because here's what we know to be true. Any freedom that we have is only, any freedom that we enjoy is only because of Christ Jesus. Amen? And therefore, as we sang earlier, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I cannot look to Fox News or CNN for hope for this nation. I cannot cast my gaze on Washington to try to find the hope that I desire for this country. I cannot trust the political system to bring the hope that we need. Am I telling you the truth? All of that is sinking sand, according to the hymn we just sang. It's all sinking sand. But where can we look? Where can we look to find truth? We find it in the Word of God, where we find three critical things, three critical truths that are important for us today. The first one is this. We owe everything to God's sovereign goodness. We owe everything to God's sovereign goodness to us as a people and as a nation. Secondly, we need to be lavishly thankful, lavishly grateful to God for the good that he has given us. And we also need to be constantly in prayer, never ceasing in prayer for this nation that we love. It is only By the goodness of the Lord, that we have and enjoy what we have and enjoy today. And we err if we are anything but lavishly grateful for that goodness that he has bestowed upon us. And there should never be any lack of prayer ascending to the throne of God on behalf of this nation. Can we agree on those three things today? I will be honest with you. Almost every pastor friend that I have across this country with whom I've spoken recently, and I'm sure there are others, is really struggling today. It's not an easy day to preach. It's not. In fact, many of the pastors that I've spoken to are at the point of throwing in the towel, saying things like, Dan, you just can't win today. Regarding the issues of the day, if you say nothing, you are shamed. If you dare speak and it appears you are taking some position, whatever that position is, you are damned for that. So the question then comes, not only to this pastor, but to every pastor I've spoken to. What is to be preached today from pulpits across America? What should be coming from the pulpits of America to the people today? Well, I cannot speak for others, but I can certainly tell you what's gonna come from this pulpit today, and that is this. I have come to lift up the name of Jesus. I have come to point to him as the only hope for this nation and the only hope for this world. That's what I'm going to do today. And I have come to declare that his righteousness, his justice, and his kingdom will rule forever and ever and ever. That's what we're going to discuss today. But to do that, I'm going to direct us to a text which is... You're going to probably think it's most unusual for today because you typically only hear this text once a year and you hear it at the Christmas season. It's very clearly a text which points to uh, the advent of Christ and the coming of Christ as the babe in the manger. It is that well-known passage from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah chapter 9, which the, uh, the passage that we're going to read reminds us of this, that what man cannot do... God has done because he has given us the Messiah. Isaiah chapter nine verse six says this, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government, it will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government, and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever and the zeal of the Lord of hosts the zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to make this happen the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this Bethesda there's some very rich truth which this single passage teaches us concerning the King of Kings. And there is incredible hope resting in this passage for the believer in Christ today that we need to hang on to in this day. That though we still await the full realization of his kingdom, the fact remains that the promised Messiah is the greatest political ruler ever in time. Isaiah wrote this prophecy at least 100 years before Israel, Israel was taken to Babylonian captivity. It was about 600 years before the birth of the Savior that he wrote this prophecy. And I want you to understand that he was looking, at the time he wrote it, he was looking at a litany of failed monarchs. And he was sitting right in the middle in the rubble of Israel's monarchy and the utter mess of the condition of his day. And it was a mess. And in the midst of that, in the midst of the trouble and the turmoil and the mess his world was facing at that time, Isaiah had the eyes of faith to look across the centuries to a time when God would rule on earth through his son, Jesus Christ. Because he said this, a child will be born to us which underscores the Messiah's humanity. We know that Jesus had to come as a human being in the form of a child so he could endure the temptations that you and I face and yet be without sin. That was his task. That was his mission to do that. Hebrews 4.15 reminds us of that. Isaiah said, And a son will be given to us, which implies the Savior's deity. Christ Jesus existed, we know this, there was a, a pre-incarnate, uh, we refer to this as, as the pre-incarnate Christ. He existed before his birth as the second person of the Trinity. And Philippians tells us that although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He came as the Son of God, God in human flesh, to conquer sin and death forever. Can someone say hallelujah? But Isaiah goes on to say that the government will rest upon his shoulders, which affirms his lordship in openly and unashamedly declares the lordship of Christ because the government will rest upon his shoulders. This verse in Isaiah is looking to a time in the future when Christ will reign over a literal, earthly, geopolitical kingdom that encompasses all the kingdoms and all the governments of this world. If you're taking notes this morning, I will will occasionally just reference a scripture passage that you can look up to support all these, what I'm saying, uh, and for your own study. What I just said, I referenced Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, and Zechariah 14, verse 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And in that day, the government of the whole world will rest upon his shoulders. But until that time, his kingdom is in an an invisible form. Luke 17, verse 20 and 21. His kingdom is in an invisible form. The Messiah's rule is over those who've trusted him and obey him as Lord. In other words, his rule is over those who have allowed the government of God to be established within them. It's currently an invisible kingdom, but will one day become visible and universal as his rule extends even over those who do not acknowledge his lordship in their hearts today. That's the kingdom of God that is coming. So what kind of kingdom is it? What distinguishes the Messiah's kingdom from the other kingdoms of this world? What exactly will it look like? And how is it different from what we are experiencing or living in today? Excuse me. I'm proposing that to answer the questions I've just asked about this kingdom, Isaiah has given us the answers. Because all of the names given in our text today will point to or hint at four characteristics that make the Messiah's kingdom different from any other earthly kingdom. Pardon me. <clears throat> and I don't know about you, but I find great hope for tomorrow in considering what the word tells us about our future. Hello. <clears> then <throat> I pray that your heart will be comforted as we take a quick look at what God's kingdom will look like. Number one, I would say there will be no confusion in the kingdom of God because he is a wonderful counselor. Can you say that? I know that some versions of Scripture separate wonderful from counselor. Some put them together. Most translations of the modern translations put them together. But the reality of it is this. We have never seen a political leader who is a wonderful counselor like Jesus. Some of them may have a measure of wisdom. Some may possess uh, a, a great personality or oratory skills or have a certain charisma. But when you compare the greatest social or political leader with our Lord Jesus Christ, you'll find there's no comparison at all because he's the wonderful counselor. The coming kingdom of God will be ruled by a wonderful counselor. Isn't that encouraging to you today? And if you study every major encounter Jesus had with individuals who came to him for for counsel all throughout the New Testament, you'll find that he always knew exactly what to say. He always knew when to reach out to a seeking heart. He also knew when to rebuke an impetuous soul. In fact, so much so that even his, his enemies remarked and said, never did a man speak like this man. Never did a man speak the way this man speaks, John seven forty six. As God incarnate, Christ is the source of all truth. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the, the life. Do you know any politician that can say that today? That they are the way, They are the truth and they are the life. It is to Jesus and Jesus alone that we must ultimately turn and trust his loving rule of our lives. Allowing the government of God to be firmly established. God's government firmly established within us. Which is now this invisible kingdom. The Messiah is the wonderful counselor because he is God and he is the source of all truth. When he rules the earth, there will be no confusion. There will be no uncertainty in his administration because he is the ultimate and the only true answer to political confusion. Let the church say amen. So what else, what other hints do we get from Isaiah? What the coming kingdom of God may look like. Well, not only no, no, no uh, confusion, but also no chaos. Can you say that? No chaos because he is the mighty God. The Messiah's kingdom is singularly free from chaos because he's the mighty God. How do I say that? Because he is the one who in creation brought order out of chaos. Can we just say only a mighty God could do that? And scripture says God is not a God of confusion, but he is a God of peace, 1 Corinthians 14, 33. Not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Chaos is antithetical or the opposite to who he is because he is a God of order. And because he is orderly, he brings order to the troubled lives who surrender themselves to him. So whether on a global, international, global basis, a national basis, whatever, or just literally the the chaos of your own life, because we serve the mighty God, Isaiah has declared he is the mighty God. He brings order to chaos even in our troubled lives. All of us who surrender to him. In other words, he not only can tell his subjects what to do because he's the wonderful counselor, But also, since he's the mighty God, he empowers us to be able to do what he asks us to do. And let's be honest, legislation can't do that. It cannot bring order out of chaos. Because of our human sinful nature, people will always strain, Romans 7, 8 tells us, people will always strain against law and order. There's a natural uh, tension to law and order because, of, because we, are, we are sinful uh, beings. And when you add human fallibility to the inability to make people obey from the heart, you quickly see the severe limitations of political and legislative solutions. It just doesn't do it. But when Jesus comes to rule this earth, he will display his divine power by bringing order to the chaos of this world. But I also have to say this. Scripture also makes it clear that those who do not submit to his leadership from the heart, those who do not submit to his lordship, he will subjugate with a rod of iron. How do I know that? Well, there's four verses that I would reference. Psalm two, verse nine, Revelation two, 27, Revelation 12, five, Revelation 19, 15. All of those verses make reference to the fact that he will subjugate with a rod of iron those who are not following into his kingdom and and, and under his rule and his authority. Those who humble themselves from the heart bowing to him as lord and savior will find the power of the mighty god unleashed in their lives to help them obey god's power is so strong for all of us because he christ is god he can forgive sin he can defeat satan he can liberate people from the power of uh, uh, of darkness he can redeem us he can answer our prayers he can restore the, our broken souls and he can reign as lord all because he is the mighty god And that, my friends, is something no politician the world has ever seen can say. In the kingdom of God, there will be no confusion because he's the wonderful counselor. In the kingdom of God, there will be no chaos because he's the mighty God. But also in the kingdom of God, there will be no complexity because he is the everlasting father. Dan, how do you get that? in comparison to human governments, the Messiah's kingdom is uncomplicated. It has natural rhythms, it is not forced. It has an organic sense to it because he's the eternal father. The phrase literally means the father of all eternity. Why do you say that? Because he sees the end from the beginning. He has it all in view, and he has worked it all out. It is not complex to him because he is eternal. We get all tied up in complexities because we can't see the possibilities of moving forward. He sees it all from beginning to end. In the kingdom of God, there will be no complexity because he's the everlasting father. So this idea of him being eternal, there's clear reference biblically, To the fact that he is the creator of heaven and earth. How do you say that? Well, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 10 is God the Father speaking to Christ the Son. And he says, in the beginning, Lord, you made the foundation of the earth and made the heavens with your hands. They will perish, but you remain forever. They will wear out like old clothing. Oh, but you, you will fold them like a cloak and discard them like old clothing. But you are always the same. You will live forever. That substantiates and supports the understanding that he is eternal. Nothing is too complex for the creator. Nothing is too complex for the one who is the sustainer of everything. uh, infinity and all of its intricacies are nothing to him. Why? He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the first and the last. He is the, can you say it? The beginning and the end. He is all of that. To us, have you noticed that life seems to be getting more and more complex? I mean, technology has so improved communication and transportation that commerce and culture and and even religion have become global in nature, and rather than organizing and making sense of it all, governments of the world seem to exist primarily to make things more complicated. I don't know about you, I thought computers and smartphones were supposed to make our life easier. Did I miss the memo somewhere? You gotta download this, you gotta upgrade that, you gotta pay this, you gotta do that. And then computers are great when they work. Am I telling the truth? And when they don't, it's a problem. They were supposed to fix everything for us. So our lives would be easy and everything would be more convenient. But our lives have turned out to be more complex and growing more perplexing every day. But Messiah's government, however, is simple. It is uncomplicated. Its rhythms are smooth. He is the sole ruler. There's no bloated bureaucracy with him. And he knows the end from the beginning because he is the father of eternity. And he alone comprehends the complexities of time and eternity and requires no bureaucracies because he shoulders the governments all by himself on his shoulder. He carries them all. In the kingdom of God, there will be no confusion. In the kingdom of God, there will be no chaos. In the kingdom of God, there will be no complexity. Can I just say it again as I talk about this? If your heart is weary today, and I so resonated with Pastor Brenda as she stepped up here, and I honestly... Many times, Brenda, I've had to go from there and walk up here right after a time of worship and there's such a a glorious sense of the presence of God and our hearts get broken and it's almost hard to just go on and do what you're supposed to do, right? because there's just, God's presence is here. But I know that so many are troubled and weighed down and burdened with with what's happening in our world today. But I wanna remind us today, we have a hope, we have a future, we have a destiny that is still awaiting us. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Somebody shout hallelujah today in the house. In the kingdom of God, the government will rest upon his shoulders. There'll be no confusion. There'll be no chaos. There'll be no complexity, and finally, there will be no there will be no conflicts because He is the Prince of Peace. Blessed be the Lord. He's the Prince of Peace. In fact, He offers peace from God Romans one seven to all who are recipients of His grace. He brings peace. With God, Romans 5.1, to those who surrender to him in faith. And he brings the peace of God, Philippians 4.7, to those who walk with him. There's peace all over you. There's peace above you, behind you, before you. There's peace, there's peace all around you. From God, peace with God, the peace of God. And let's be honest, that's only because of him. That's only by, by being in his kingdom. It's only by living in him that we have our being in him. Because this world has never, this earth has never experienced peace as we think of it. Right? Wars, rumors of wars have characterized the entire two millennia since the angel's announcement at his birth where they said peace on earth. Back when the angel announced that Christ is coming in peace on earth, goodwill to men, we've had almost no peace since then. Well, let me just briefly unpack that. I'm, I'll, I'll make it brief. That angelic announcement of peace on earth was a two-pronged proclamation. First, it proclaimed that God's peace is available to men and women right now. Bless the Lord. God's peace is available to men and women right now. Are you not feeling peace today? God has provided everything that you have need of for peace with him today and the peace of God in your heart. That was the first proclamation. It was to men and women right now. The the, the words of of Luke chapter two, we read it every Christmas. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Who are those with whom he's pleased? They are those who have yielded their lives to the authority of the government of God. That's what pleases him. The Lord taketh pleasure. Psalm 147, 11 says, The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. A two-pronged proclamation of peace. The second part is this. The angel's announcement of peace on earth declared the arrival of the only one who ultimately can bring lasting peace on earth. Jesus, who is peace, has come, and he brings lasting peace in in the final establishment of his earthly kingdom, and here's what I love to dwell upon, nothing No one, no circumstances, no world catastrophe, nothing will be able to disturb the peace that he brings to the world. I spent all of our time pretty much on verse 6 of Isaiah 9. But in our text, it does continue in verse 7. I just want to note a couple of things. It says, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. No end. In other words, his government and his peace will keep expanding and keep improving. Really? How can anything perfect improve? You think it gets to perfection and it's done, it stops, It's, it's perfect, it cannot be. Can I just say that is one of the mysteries of the kingdom of God? That God who can even take something which is perfect has arrived, it looks like it's at its final place and he can keep expanding and keep improving it. That's the mystery of the kingdom of God. It gets better and better. And the perfect peace flows deeper and deeper and deeper. There are hymns that substantiate this. And how will this all happen? The last part of verse seven gives us that answer. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. That word zeal, if you look it up uh, in the Hebrew, it's kinah, Q-I-N-A-H. kina and it speaks of his, God's jealousy over his people. It speaks of God's passionate desire for his kingdom to be actualized within his people. And it is that passionate desire, with the kina, the passionate desire within him, that's what's gonna drive him to accomplish all of these things that we're understanding today about the coming kingdom of God. And there will be nothing or no one that can stop it. Church, our Lord is coming back to earth again. Satan will be bound a thousand years. We'll have no tempter then, after Jesus shall come back to earth again. How many have ever sung that song before? Two of you, great, I'm the oldest one in the room, hallelujah. I look forward to the day when he returns to execute the final political solution that will truly bring world peace. He is the greatest, his will be the greatest government because it's ruled by the greatest ruler, who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. Bethesda, that's the only hope for mankind. If your hope is in this world, if your hope is in what you're seeing today, you are of all men most miserable. But our hope, zoom out, church. Our hope is not in what we're seeing today. Our hope is not in the political situation we see today. Our hope is not in the government that we see today. Our hope is in the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Our hope is in the Prince of Peace. He is the only hope for mankind. But the question is, for you and I today, is the government of your life resting upon his shoulders? Is he ruling? Is he reigning? Every aspect of your heart, every part of your being, have you withheld this little corner over here? Is he truly the one in control, in, 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 with authority? Is he the truly? Are you living by the government of God? Because when that happens, only then you will experience the growing, expanding, improving peace that comes only from the Prince of Peace. Somebody say amen. In my immersed reading this week, I'm running a couple of weeks ahead of you. I'm not cheating. I'm just ahead of you a little bit. In my immerse reading this week, I was actually on a plane on Friday afternoon, returning from being in Nashville for a couple of days. I ran across a verse, and I know you've all had this experience, reading something, and it just bounced off the page. I read it, and it, it almost took my breath away. And it was in, of all, all places, in Ezekiel. It's a situation with Ezekiel, and I close with this. Situation with Ezekiel, where he's having a vision and he's talking about having this vision and something happens to him. And it's that phrase that grabbed me and shook me to the core. It's in Ezekiel chapter eight, verse one. He is defining the time. He's gonna say, here's when this happened. And then he gives a statement that arrested my attention. He says, then on September 17th, During the sixth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, while the leaders of Judah were in my home, and here's the phrase the sovereign Lord took hold of me. Think on that for just a minute. The sovereign Lord took hold of me. Would you say that with me? The sovereign Lord took hold of me. I literally went, What does that mean? What is that that like? For a man to write and can give you the date when it happened, the sovereign Lord took hold of him. Other versions say, God's hand was placed upon me. There's a lot of reference in many, many versions. I looked it up in probably a dozen. Speaking of God's hand, the sovereign Lord took hold of me. He goes on to give the details of This vision of seeing the figure of a man, Ezekiel does, who lifted him up and transported him to Jerusalem and whereupon he was made to see a very large idol in the temple which made the Lord very jealous. Wow. So much so that the sins of the people were driving God away from his temple. I don't know what that does for you today. But for me, it is sobering to know and to believe that the sovereign God can and will take hold of us. What does it mean? Well, I could go on another hour with it with all that just literally exploded in my heart on the airplane on Friday. But all I can say is this, God, I want you to take hold of me. I want you to take hold of Bethesda. I want you to take hold of this nation. And if that means driving out every idol that we have, then get rid of it. I think, church, my, one of my greatest concerns is that we're blind, insensitive, and blind to many of the idols that are still functioning in our lives. We've excused them. We've dismissed them. We've acted like, oh, it's, it's a small thing, it's nothing. But we have allowed idols, just as the children of Israel. You're reading verse. How often are there idols that have to be gotten rid of, and then they come back to idols that have to be gotten rid of? How often are there more idols, and they have to be gotten rid of for peace with God? It's exactly the way it is. And I think, as I was contemplating on sharing with you today about the coming kingdom of God and the hope that we have, that as believers we have an incredibly strong future. We have a hope. We have a future. We have a destiny that's yet awaiting us. I also became aware that, God, if there's anything in me, and as the pastor of this fellowship, if there's anything in this house that is not pleasing to you, if there is an idol that we have allowed to form in any way that maybe we're not even sensitive to, we don't don't see it, then will you, sovereign God, take hold of us? Let this be the day that we said, on this day, July 5th, let it be written of us that on July 5th, 2020, the Sovereign Lord took hold of me. He put his hand upon me. He put his hand upon us. And he said in order for my kingdom to be established within you, according, uh, in order for my government, the government of God, to be established in you and in the house known as Bethesda. That's got to go. That idol has to go in the name of Jesus. Ultimately, what we're asking is for a cleansing. It will be a rending of our hearts. It will be a season of repentance. As we come into this season and and, and period of time for the ultimate purposes of saying, God, we desperately need your hand of favor and blessing to rest upon us, on our lives, on our church, on our nation, on our world, for the glory of the name of Jesus, so that we can say the government of God is established in our life. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Come on, stand with me, church.